Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgeley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. With Rob Gilbert on the bench, you're with Willem van Denderen and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly, and as always, we'll be joined throughout the show by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. The story of the week on the domestic front is, undeniably, the Mighty Mariners. For so long, a genuine sporting basket case, the thought of 20,000 packing into Gosford to watch them cruise into a grand final for many years felt like days gone by. That we're experiencing it again is in large part due to their manager, Nick Montgomery, who we are delighted to welcome back to the show. Following that, we'll check in with the Athletics' Carl Anker, who in July told us that Eric Ten Hag's biggest challenge as new Manchester United boss was to wrangle the cultural fabric of the club back in the line. As we near the end of Season 1, there's no better time to ask Carl how he's graded the Dutchman. There'll be women's World Cup corner to round out, as always. Edge, you're fired up and raring to go in BKK. What's caught your eye this week, my friend? Oh, hello, Willem, and greetings to all the listeners, wherever you are around Australia, or in the far-flung corners of the blue dot we call Earth, uh, Willem. Uh, my first, uh, my first reflection is that I wanted to make mention of the very sad circumstances ar- uh, around what's happened in uh, El Salvador. The global football community, uh, twelve fans died and over hundred fans seriously injured in a crowd crush. It brought back memories of what happened in Indonesia recently in another uh, stadium tragedy. Tragedy. The match was between Alianza and Club Deportivo in San Salvador, El Salvador. Um, tragic news again from uh, a country that's a developing nation more. Uh, and I just wanted to uh, mention that uh, solidarity amongst fans is so wonderful for our game. And uh, we should just take a moment to reflect on that tragedy and hope that uh, it doesn't happen again in the Authorities in El Salvador uh, are getting to the bottom of that situation. Oh, well, so no, important to bring it to light. And yeah, unfortunately, brings back memories of uh, Lembe, the African Cup of Nations early last year. And of course, the external tragedy, if you like, it was uh, 89. Derek Dyson, welcome to you, my friend. Manchester City roll on. Uh, a force that have gobbled up the Gunners in the league format. Uh, do you foresee them doing the same to Man U in the FA Cup final and then to Inter Milan in Istanbul? Yeah, it's hard to see them not gobbling up the rest of those trophies as you said Willem it's been a you know they're obviously just an excellent side a supreme standard that they set and yes a lot of jokes made about performance in the European Cup and so-called bottling it but if you actually look at what they do season on season reaching semis finals etc they're extremely consistent and it's only a matter of time, really, that that they um, that they win it. And yeah, we're not ruling out Inter Milan uh, entirely, but at the same time, we didn't rule out Real Madrid either. We had a feeling about Real Madrid, and they just absolutely monstered them, didn't they? So um, yeah, I, they're a wrecking ball uh, with Haaland's face on the front, and Arsenal were the um, the first club-sized ambitions to be wrecked this season. And Edge, I suppose, all we can really say is that if you'd come up to you and me at the start of the season and said guarantee you second right now i think we would have taken oh absolutely and for arsenal fans yeah we should be a little disappointed how the team's unraveled in these final few rounds but um you know it's all about for arsenal fans now 
what can they do with the squad to strengthen the squad to get better? Uh, they'll need more depth in the squad for Champions League football uh, next season. So it'll be a very interesting little period when it gets down to the off-season recruiting, who they can bring in, who they let go. Uh, yeah, there'll be all a lot of discussion, and that's the challenging component of any team who's had a great season, as it will be for Brighton, who's done sensationally well to to get themselves into the Europa League, if they can, can hold that position through the last final games. But, um, you know, those clubs who've had great seasons need to improve. And how do you do it? How do you walk the tightrope to uh, weed out the players that you think that can't take you to the next level? But also, obviously... Their replacements have to get the job done as well. We'll jump into the news. Domestically, the Central Coast Mariners will compete in their first grand final in a decade after moving past Adelaide United 4-1 on aggregate across their two semi-final legs. They'll meet a Melbourne City side playing in their fourth straight grand final and first under Rado Vidisic, who led them to their own comfortable win over Sydney FC. Uh, the Mariners edge a record 20,059 at Gosford on Saturday night and now enjoy something of a home ground advantage, even though they haven't earned it for the grand final on June. June 3 and you can manipulate the grand final decision to suit whichever side of the fence you sit on and I mean I've done it week in week out but you can't tell me that a decent a decent more than decent portion of those passionate engaged 20,000 Mariners fans wouldn't have made the trip to Melbourne and helped sell out Amy Park uh, as has happened every single year in A-League history bar last year when we had two very low drawing sides in in Western United and City. Oh, absolutely. If you're a Central Coast Mariners fan, you'll be going down the highway to, to see the grand final, no doubt about it. But I just want to make special mention of Central Coast Mariners. Much has been said about, you know, Melbourne victories, issues with fans, um, Sydney FC, the Co, Western Sydney Wanderers. It's never really been the same since the new stadium in Parramatta was built. But Central Coast Mariners have done the hard work. They've continued to engage with their local community and they're reaping the awards. That is the biggest attendance they've ever had at that ground. It was absolutely packed to the rafters, a superb atmosphere. And if you're Western United or MacArthur or even Melbourne City who they're playing in the grand final, you could do a lot worse than take a leaf out of their book and just think about the local engagement in building a fan base. It is a real highlight of the A-League men's competition this year. And congratulations to them. And we all love an underdog story, don't we? The um, Melbourne City, the Titans... They are the Goliath of Australian professional men's football and uh, Central Coast Mariners. They will be the underdogs, but I'll give them a big chance. The last two games they've played, the games have been very close. Not to be too dramatic about it, Edge, but there have been times over the past five years where they were as dead as a sporting club could possibly be. I think a degree of credit has to go to Alan Stadjic as well. He was the one who stopped the rot on the pitch. It was a poison chalice, that job, the amount of guys who went through it. Uh, but he put together a, a very strong season, then left. Montgomery's taken up the cudgels and off-field, they've sorted themselves out as well. Richard Peel in for his first year uh, as chair, following the departure of Mike Charlesworth, who cast a, a pall over the club for a long time. He did a lot of good, but he was also, you know, holding them back to an extent. It was, you know, it was told. I don't have a first-hand account of that, but it was an issue that had to be had to be sorted. So for them to be in a grand final, as I said, I, I thought those days were, were probably never going to come again. So well done to them. Uh, and... Melbourne City deserve a word as well. Uh, that was decided really when Max Burgess went in with one of the sillier tackles you'll see. Uh, yeah, it was ugly, do, wasn't it, Will? Yeah, we'll do more on that on in stoppage time later in the week, but they were clinical from there. 4-0, uh, 5-1 on aggregate in the end. The rumours were true, Edge. The Socceroos are returning to China for the first time in 15 years. They're going to play Argentina at Beijing's Workers' Stadium on June 15. Graham Arnold recently stated the prospect of another meeting with the world champions gave him goosebumps, and it does 
now act as another huge test or a tune-up, however you want to look at it, uh, along with our October meeting with England on the road to the Asian Cup. Always a dissenting voice, uh, the president of the Uyghur Association of Victoria, Alim Osman, has called the match another slap in the face to Uyghur Australians, and that is uh, a voice that certainly deserves to be heard. I think we could probably put that in similar context to how we treated human rights issues in Qatar uh, for the for the World Cup. But as I say, certainly something that does deserve uh, recognition. But my question to you, Mr. Edgley, why China? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Obviously, um, uh, Argentina are a, a big ticket item. Uh, everybody wants to play Argentina. Everybody wants to see Argentina. They are the world champions, the biggest brand in international football. You know, the Brazilians might argue that they are a big brand, so must might the French and the English and the Germans, but Argentina is the big daddy at the moment. So um, obviously promoters have been looking to uh, to get this game together and uh, the Australian Federation has been in talks with the Argentinian Federation for quite some time. So I can only imagine the money that is behind this game to go to China. Um, they're obviously looking for a huge television audience, a big gate at Workers' Stadium. Don't forget that China has been, you know, um, the, lock, the, the most locked up country uh, in the whole COVID era. So they're just actually emerging from their hiatus of lockdowns now. So, um, yeah, their football fans uh, will be gasping for some quality content. So, yeah, well done to whoever's put it together, the promoters. But uh, And what a great experience for that young Australian team to get a chance to... Uh, re-engage with Argentina. You and I were there with them uh, at uh, Ahmed Bin Ali Stadium in uh, in, in Doha and we saw uh, what was um, an incredible match in the last 15 minutes of that game was was some of the best football I've seen the soccer who's played in a long time. So let's hope that they can uh, continue that uh, performance and um, it's a great experience for everyone. In terms of the politics, uh, you know, my opinion, um, engagement is better than, than boycotts. Um, if Australia, by going there, if it's an opportunity for our politicians and foreign affairs departments to create closer connections and ties and talk about these issues. That's what I find gets bigger change than boycotting. I'm not a fan of boycotts. I'm a fan of engagement. Yeah, I think if you have further questions off the back of that chat, Vince Rigari's tied it up really nicely. You've spoken to James Johnson about where this sits politically and uh, ties in with the the Albanese government's objectives as well in in the region. So uh, well worth jumping on the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age website and having a look uh, because it is a complex one, an interesting one football perspective, sort of bare bones of it. We're playing Argentina. Uh, exciting to go again. Derek, we touched on City, uh, but they are champions once again. Uh, Newcastle United as well, should they beat Leicester uh, early Tuesday morning? They'll have secured a place in the Champions League, but that is a fifth title for Pep Guardiola. I thought I might just ask uh, to, for you to touch on his legacy. Uh, that leaves uh, Kenny Dalglish and Herbert Chapman behind, puts him level with Tom Watson and uh, so Matt Busby in the UK, uh, only Ferguson, George Ramsey and Bob Paisley ahead. Uh, he is rattling up this table at great pace. You can't deny the results on paper, but clearly City are going through an unprecedented era and superbly run club. You know, when you look at the money football clubs out there, we can look down at Chelsea and see a club with all the money, but absolutely being run into the ground with Terrible decision-making, bad appointments. But Manchester City have got the best uh, Atono, you know, structure in place. They've got a superb manager. They recruit really well. There's obviously the asterisks that people are trying to put on this title, which is 
the 115 charges from the, the Premier League. And of course, you can go deeper in terms of the way that the club is is funded. Um, I suppose my reflection on it is that, you know, City don't have to struggle a lot, do they? I mean, they never have to lose their best players. They, they, they always seem to be at the top. And I think that what makes them different to everyone else in the league. Whereas even the likes of Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, eventually have all got to make sacrifices in order to stay ahead. City don't have to do that. There, there, there's literally no turbulence for Manchester City. Yes, the turbulence of the 115 um, Premier League um, sanctions, and that's you know, but they've also had the financial fair play thrown them in the past, and that's been rejected. So they're just this serene light blue machine and it just kind of glides on and the rest of the Premier League just has to admire it and wonder it, wonder at it and wonder how on earth are we going to compete with that because they're only getting better. If you are interested in the title race, it's going to go down to the final day. I'll direct you to Germany. Borussia Dortmund are going to take a two-point lead over Bayern Munich into the last day there. Uh, The sad story out of La Liga, unfortunately, the headline news is that Real Madrid's Vinicius Jr. uh, has tweeted that La Liga belongs to racists. He was subjected to chance at Valencia, and there's footage doing the rounds of uh, of it. It's it's as ugly as you could imagine. at one point, he attempted to bring it to the referee's attention. He later posted on Instagram that the championship that once belonged to Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Cristiano, and Messi, today it belongs to racists. Uh, we've made our thoughts clear on these sorts of issues on the on the, uh, on the the program previously, but the bottom line is that he's a 22-year-old guy who he said loves the fact that Spain has taken him in. Uh, it's his home, uh, and now he's being treated like this on the other side of it. To close, Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Uh, a Premier League debut over the past week. Edge, Cam Perpion. He's been quietly grinding away for Brighton's underage sides uh, since leaving Sydney FC, and he's become the 55th Aussie to play in the league uh, coming off the bench against Newcastle. Uh, congratulations. High, high hopes. Absolutely. He got about five minutes in the Brighton match, so he might get some more time before the end of the season's out, but congratulations to him. He's part of the squad, and... He's got his Premier League debut and he's one of the very few Australian nationals to uh, have made that great achievement with him. So congratulations to him. Riley McGrew is going to have to wait or move to become number 56. Middlesbrough went down to Coventry City by a single goal in their championship semi-final. Uh, and also congrats in order for Jordan Boss, uh, another one of our brightest prospects by some way. Uh, he's on his way to Westerlo in Belgium uh, and he's broken the record for money coming into Australia uh, by a European club. And to close, Chelsea need only to beat Reading. Uh, even a draw will do uh, likely to see Sam Kerr lift another league title. Neither Caitlin Ford or Steph Catley featured as the Blues beat Arsenal 2-0 uh, and a bit of action for some peripheral Matildas hoping to make that World Cup squad in a couple of months. Claire Wheeler played a full match for Everton uh, in a win over Brighton and Mackenzie Arnold and West Ham had the last laugh over a Leicester side featuring Remy Seamson and Courtney Nevin. Stick around on the other side of the break. Central Coast Mariners boss Nick Montgomery. <laughs> Don't let the flu ruin your plans this year. Get in early and help protect yourself with the flu immunisation available at Chemist Warehouse. The quadrivalent vaccine helps protect against four strains of influenza. However, it can take several weeks to take full effect. So, Edge, it is essential to get in and get it done nice and early. One of those strains for them is the Phuket strain. Didn't know that there was a strain of flu called the Phuket strain, so I've had my uh, injection wound and uh, I'm in Thailand, so I'm super banned. I'm inoculated and I am immune from catching the flu. 
Jeez, sounds good. If anyone's going to get the Phuket strain, it's you. So glad that you uh, you are inoculated from it. Book your appointment now. Do what Edge did uh, because it does take a whole community to build immunity. It's quick, convenient, and affordable. Plus, you don't even need to bring a script. The prescription and administration are provided in-store by a qualified health professional. And this year, the quadrivalent strain vaccine, including the Phuket strain in there as well, is $19.99 at Chemist Warehouse. Build immunity and book your flu immunisation today at chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Decade ago, Nick Montgomery was the heartbreak story in the stands as the Mariners won their first and to this point only A-League Championship. There'll be no denying his involvement this time on the touchline as the gaffer who's restored this side to the glory of his playing days. Nick Montgomery, congratulations on the semi-final success and welcome back to Box to Box. Cheers, guys. Good to talk as, as always. We could go through your entire starting eleven and find stories well worth talking about, but I think the place to start, considering you've been at the club for so long... Uh, is where the club has been. I mean, we've heard it all, really. Um, relocation, bought by Manchester United, wind them up. If you've been you know, in the Australian game for long enough, you've heard it all said about the Mariners. So to then get to what we had on Saturday night, sold out Gosford, passionate fans, dominant side on the pitch. How did that make you feel as a died-in-the-wool Mariner? Yeah, look, you mentioned a few things there. Obviously, over the years, there's you know, there's been success. When I first came out here 10 years ago, um, you know, we won the championship, the club went bankrupt, and obviously Graham Arnold moved on. And then, yeah, you know, obviously after that, our you know, coaches came in and the budget was was slashed to, you know, to, to the minimum. And, 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 yeah, coaches struggled and, and the team struggled for for a number of years. To, to get results um, and yeah look I saw that as a as a player um, and, and obviously I retired in 2016 went into coaching uh, in the academy and sort of rebuilt rebuilt the academy well it's been look it's been a, a, a 10 years where I've learned a lot about the club learned a lot about myself and I knew that you know when I got the opportunity and you know I wanted to take the club and and yeah, just you know, prove everybody wrong and prove that you know you can compete with a small budget and, and the smallest club in the league. You just need the right people in the building, in staff and players, and and yeah, just uh, the belief that, that you can compete. So look, there's a lot of stories. Some were probably true, some were probably ridiculous, um, but that's the media. And um, but the fact is that you know, ten years on, you know, um, we're back in a grand final, and and ten years since. I got my first red card and, and actually played every game that season and missed the final, which, which you just mentioned at the start. And so, bittersweet. And, and yeah, as a coach, to, to get the team back into the next grand final is a really, really proud moment. And it's one that I'm looking forward to. I know everybody in uh, on the Central Coast and, and no doubt many people in the country see this this underdog story as, yeah, probably like a film. Um, and, 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 you know, hopefully it'll have a good ending. I think what all of us around Australia who are passionately involved with the game and following it closely, the Central Coast Mariners, the engagement with the fans, the building of the community is something to to hold dear. Not only is the achievement of getting the grand final sensational, but just the engagement with the fans, it's a, it's a, a real beacon of, of light and hope for the rest of the clubs that if you do the hard work, you get the results. So congratulations. But I want to ask you about Sam Silvera. Much has been made of his... Uh, relationship with the club, his challenging time in Europe, and then he was uh, he, he was able to be brought back into the club. Um, that um, late run or that run from midfield where he just gut-busting run to get on the end of Jason Cummings, 
good work on the on the touchline. Uh, I just want you to explain to uh, the fans right around Australia how much he's meant to the team this year, and you know how far can Sam take his career? He's only twenty two years old. We'd love just to get your thoughts on. Um, on his performance on the weekend, but also what's ahead of him. Yeah, look, Sam's one of a number of, of very exciting young players we've got in the team. And and uh, attacking front four, he, he's had a fantastic season. You mentioned then he's 22 years old. You know, I know Sam, I was coaching in the academy when Sam was last year. Um, I had a good relationship with him. He went overseas. Um, look, again, you know, for me, you have to be able to dominate in the A-League before you go overseas. And I think so many young players here are just in a mad rush to go overseas, whether it's the agents, whether it's them, you know, but but it's not easy overseas. You're talking squads of 40, 50 players, you know, it's away from home. And, and if you're not ready, it, it, look, it's, it can be a good experience, but it can also be detrimental. So I think, um, you know, Sam, I spoke to Sam before he went to the Jets. Um, you know, I wanted to bring him in in my first season, but you know, the reality was he was still contracted to his club in Portugal, uh, where we'd sold him to. Um, and for me to bring a lone player back in, if that doesn't benefit the Mariners, then then I don't see the point in, in really doing it because that's hampering another young player from the club, for example, um, playing first team football. And you know, if it's not going to benefit the Mariners financially, and you're just you know developing a player for another club. That doesn't make sense to me. So we spoke to Sammy um, and, and yeah, look, he, uh, he went to the Jets on loan that season. Um, unfortunately, he didn't play many games. You know, they, they obviously didn't see much value in, in Sammy and, and, and that really surprised me. So the end of that season is probably the best thing happened. He'd not played much. Um, I spoke to his agent and Sammy again and I just said, look, you get him out of the club on a free and, and I'll sign him at the club on a three-year deal. I'll reignite him. We'll get his confidence back because I know the ability he's got and, and when he does that, you know, he can have a, a season or two here, get him to where I know he can get to. And, and no doubt then, you know, he'll be ready to hopefully get in the Socceroos and, and possibly go back overseas to Europe, to a big club, you know, and, and, and he'll be ready to go. So, yeah, I spoke to Sammy and, and we had the honest conversation and he came back this year and, and look, pre-season was probably the hardest he's ever had. You know, we push him every day, we demand off him. Um, you know, I demand off him every day and, I tell him what he needs to do and, and what he does well and what he doesn't do well and we evaluate every game and we go back on every game at his, his actions and where he can get better and look, he's, he's a great kid. Number one, he's, he's athletically, he's, he's very, very good and he's a very good player. So if you put them three things together and you find consistency, then I think that's the Sammy Silveri you see now. But he can still get more consistent um, because when he's on it, he's, he's unplayable. And, and again, on the weekend, when he's uh, when he's bursting forward with the ball, you know, if you're a defender, you don't want to be facing Sammy Silvera. And, and, and right now, he's he's on good form along with the whole team and and that front four. You know, they play together, they're unselfish, they, they combine at will because they're such good friends and and they all want the best for each other. And I think you saw that with you know Jason's run down the right. You know, our, our natural goal scorer, Jason Cummins, and he, he sets Sammy up. And yeah, we work a lot on getting numbers into the box. And picking up, picking out the right option, and and Jason picked out the right option, and Sammy was there, and yeah, I think that goal just completely killed Adelaide. It killed the tie, and it meant that we could sort of go into cruise control uh, from that moment on, and yeah, we should, you know, we probably could have had another couple of goals to to to, to really, uh, yeah. Well, Sammy's a great kid. He's got 
still got a long way to go, but I think he can be a top player and I think he's shown everybody. Uh, he certainly has, and I'm looking forward to see what he can do against Melbourne City in the grand final. We know that the uh, the road from Gosford to Sydney on grand final day is going to be full of traffic, all the fans going down, but I'm just thinking about the casual A-League fan or the casual football fan. I'm really thinking about them, and they may not be aware of this, but the last two times you've played Melbourne City, the games have been incredibly tight. You had a 1-1 draw at home. Um, when I watched that, I thought uh, you were a bit unlucky not to get all three points. And then the game before that, it was a stinking hot day in Melbourne. I think it was 42 or 43 degrees. Um, you got beat 1-0, but I really can't take too much uh, out of that game in terms of a prediction of what happened. So uh, just what can the casual A-League fan Who's, who lives in Sydney, who's thinking about, oh, will I go to the grand final? Uh, I reckon they should. What is your team going to deliver uh, as a spectacle at the grand final, Nick? Look, I agree with, with uh, what you just mentioned then about the two games. So they were both tight games, you know. The, the, the one in Gosford probably could have been, you know, 4-3 to us in the end. You know, it was one of them games where we had a lot of chances. They had chances. And, and, and yeah, look, if anyone has watched this season, who's scored more goals in the, in, in the club's existence, and and the fact of the matter is Melbourne City are the top team, you know, they're, they're one of the biggest budgets, you know, most most uh, soccerers in, in in the squad, you know, obviously big visa players, very good players, and and yeah, they, you know, they've they've won stuff over the last couple of years. Most of the team's been together for a couple of years, and and deservedly they won the Premier's plate. But I think you know the average fan, you know, should want to come and watch the game because it's two very good teams, two teams that play attacking football. Um, and it's going to be a, a fantastic game. So yeah, I think it's, it's if any neutral, you know, watches the A League, they'll see that. They'll, you know, the, the teams that finish one and two in the in the competition finish there on merit. Um, and if they looked at the stats, I think you know, where the two teams that scored the most goals, create the most chances, most touch in the opponent's box. Um, yeah, very big disparity in terms of in terms of the budgets, but in terms of uh, the teams, yeah, the, the stats are quite similar. Obviously, they got more points than us in in the league and won the league and yeah well, you know, we both deserve to be in the grand final and you know, I think they won 5-1 well, they won 5-1 in aggregate in their semi-final and we won 4-1 so if you add them goals up there it's got everything uh, every, all the ingredients to be an exciting game Nick just going back to the club um, more broadly you spoke earlier of having the right people there and two people who have had the utmost faith uh, and deserve credit now that you're having this sort of moment of glory would be I would say long time CEO Sean Mealcamp and then more recently the, the new chair slash owner Richard Peel and I know I'm sort of ostensibly asking you to speak about your employers which can be a bit tricky but can you just touch on what they, they bring to the club and what they're like behind the scenes as two of the probably quieter uh, but no less significant figures from the uh, sort of A-League administrative side. Yeah, look, Sean's a great guy. He's been at the club for a long time. You know, he's, he's had a lot of stick as well in, in the tough times. But if anyone's followed the club, he's always tried to keep positive. You know, he's the CEO. You know, he's he's had a real difficult job, you know, because when the team's not winning games, you know, it's, it's hard to... really is hard to get sponsors in and, and get uh, numbers in the stands. But, you know, Sean has always... They remained positive and, and, you know, I think Sean, you know, knew that my time was going to come and, and yeah, look, Sean was part of, you know, part of the, him and Mike Charles were giving me the job um, because, you know, I knew they knew I was the best candidate for the job with the work that I'd done at the club as captain. You know, I'd done in the academy in terms of young players that the club was selling before I even got the job um, and, and that's what the club needs. So, yeah, Sean's, yeah, I'm really happy for Sean and, and right now he's yeah he's you know he's 
he's loving it because you know the club is now well respected for many years it went unrespected and, and that was difficult for him as a CEO um, and then Richard Peel came in um, you know towards the end of last season and yeah he's been energetic he's on the ground you know he's you know if I need anything off him you know I can ring him and and, and ask him and, and yeah he's obviously yeah enjoying being the chairman but also finding out it's it's quite stressful and there's a lot of work goes into it so he's you know he's he's very keen on building the fan base and you talk about you know the stadium's been getting for more 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 fans in as the season's gone on and 22 you know over 20,000 on the on the weekend showed you know how far the club has come and he's been very big on you know pushing the fans and, and building uh, the fan base and stuff so a lot of work's gone in uh, behind the scenes and yeah you know, a lot of people to to get credit, including a lot of my staff that work hard every single day and, and obviously the players, number one, that, that come in and work hard every day and perform on the pitch and win games because that's the hardest thing in, in any sport. And Nick, just to divert to close, if you'll indulge me in, in this one, your other club in your heart, Sheffield United, back in the top division next season and you've been ambitious and outspoken in the past about your ambition to return one day there, perhaps on the touchline. But I've got to ask, the famous Neil Warnock spray of 2004-05, the Fly on the Wall documentary series, but a F and die to get three points, that's a load of bollocks, does the rounds on YouTube, one of my favourites, and you're sitting in the corner. Do you remember it, and what are your recollections of that period with uh, with Neil? Yeah, obviously, people send me them all the time. You know, but Again, people ask now, the documentaries now, where did one at the minute about the all-access? And, you know, I, I got back you know, all that time, and <laughs> we had a, a handheld camcorder following Neil round at times and, and yeah great great character and, and yeah you see his passion and stuff um, yeah I had great memories of, of working under Neil his man management and, and his passion but yeah some of the sprays you look back on now and, and, and they're funny you know we still got a group message with all the boys from when we got promoted back in 2005 and, and, and so that sort of shows the, the team spirit that we had there you know I still speak to most, most of the players they follow what I'm doing over here which is which is really nice um, but yeah no classic some of the, some of the uh, Neil Warnock stuff and he's still I think he's more on social media now with people following him on Twitter and, and all these things but yeah you know great character gave me my debut a lot of respect for Neil and a lot of time for him and he's been oh, he's had an unbelievable career you know he's in my teams he's had promoted and, and yeah, he's just kept Huddersfield in the championship he's done some amazing things in football and yeah he's uh, yeah, definitely a colourful character but one that I learned a lot of stuff from. Nick, fantastic, mate. All the best for the grand final. Um, it's been a brutal decade at times for the Mariners. Between between drinks, you know that better than we do, but those who stick fat deserve the plaudits when times come good and you've been at the forefront of that. So congratulations on what you've achieved so far and all the best uh, for Saturday week. Cheers, guys. And the past is the past for a reason. You know, and we're looking forward now and we're looking forward to to the grand final and coming up against Melbourne City. So thanks for, yeah, thanks for your, your time and support. No worries at all. Central Coast Mariners boss Nick Montgomery there. Stick around on the other side of the break. The Athletics' Carl Anker is going to return and we're going to have a look at whether Eric Ten Hag has fixed Manchester United's in Tornal. Now, I have never met anyone in my life that doesn't love a cake or a few biscuits freshly baked from the oven. And the cooler weather of autumn, it's well and truly upon us, Derek. Winter, not too far uh, around the corner either. So there really is no better time to start baking. Make this simple Hoyt's spice mix your go-to 
two for easy prep and exquisite flavoring each time. Now we've been through this one before and I know that you put it into effect. You started with a Chinese five spice. It's a warm and rich blend with a hint of Hoyt's four color peppercorn mix, ginger and cloves. And you know well and truly that the secret ingredient is of course the famous vanilla sugar. Yeah, sounds good. Well, um, uh, Mrs. Dyson is definitely the baker in the house. So I'll be playing this back to her later as a reminder that we need need to have some more of this kind of uh, stuff in our lives. But we've got all the Hoyt spices in the uh, in the uh, pantry. So while I'm cooking up a storm of the savoury stuff, my wife can dip in and do the sweet stuff. And in between time, when you're raising the uh, two children of yours and you get a little bit tired, you sprinkle a little bit of that famous vanilla sugar on your lattes and your cappuccinos, and it keeps you kicking on. So enjoy and delight in the flavours of autumn. Refill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. As Manchester City lifted their fifth Premier League crown in six years on the weekend, those across town at Old Trafford must have felt that next season is well and truly high time to mount a proper title challenge. Has Eric Ten Hag made the most of season one as Manchester United boss to ensure that that can be the case? Only one man to ask. A pleasure to welcome back the Athletics' Carl Anker. G'day, Carl. Hi, how are you doing? Really well, thank you. We last had you on in July at the the very outset of the, the Ten Hag era during pre-season, and you mentioned that you thought his biggest challenge wasn't to nail his transfer targets or to challenge Guardiola or Klopp immediately, but uh, it was to manage the entorno, the sort of broader cultural fabric uh, and power structure of the club. Still sort of, you know, very major matters of the FA Cup final and a Champions League position to be decided over the next couple of weeks. But even leaving those aside, how do you think he's fared on the Intorno front? I think he's definitely done well to get the Intorno to buy into his systems. I think the majority of the Manchester United fan base have reached the point where they trust Eric Ten Hag or if something happens that they don't understand, they believe Eric Ten Hag will be able to fix it. One of the big things hanging over Manchester United this summer, not only is the transfer window, but the possible ownership situation. Uh, and you're beginning to hear quite a few Manchester United fans go, oh, Ten Hag is, must be getting frustrated. I hope Ten Hag doesn't want to leave, which is a which is a sign of how much they trust the manager now. And I'm sure Derek will touch on the, the sort of bigger ownership picture in a moment. But just in terms of the specific side, they were fleetingly in the in the title race as recently as early March until what was a, a pretty staggering capitulation against Liverpool. And there was also a 2-0 loss against Newcastle that was seen as a real letdown. Do you think there are strong enough foundations in place to find greater consistency next season? Greater consistency, yes. Whether or not that's enough to put together a title race remains to be seen. I think the pace that Manchester City have set and Arsenal set in the first half of the season, we've now entered a, a realm of the Premier League where you need to be able to get a high 80s or a high 90 take to, to win a Premier League title where Manchester United right now need to continue their pace and, and get 23 wins, 70 points, which is which is what you need to finish in the top four. I think with two or three further additions, Manchester United can go from finishing the season with 70 points to, to finishing possibly next season with, with 75, 76. And then from there, you, you build incrementally over two or three seasons after that. Looking at the uh, likely ins and outs uh, this summer, Carl, looking at the outs, um, maybe just a comment on Phil Jones, so one of the great unfulfilled potentials um, and, 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 you know, very un, but a very unfortunate with his career, really. 
turning down a testimonial as well because he doesn't think he deserves it by the sounds of it. Um, but then just generally, who else do we think might, uh, you know, leave the club this season? We know Axel Twinzebe is another player who's going to be out of contract this summer. He's currently been on loan to Stoke City uh, and it doesn't seem likely that he he will have his contract renewed. Also, if you look at further loanees, players like Eric Bay, who's on loan at Marseille, someone like Alex Elise, who's on loan at Sevilla, those are players that upon returning will probably have a go at pre-season, but perhaps aren't factoring too highly in Eric Ten Hag's plans. If you look at a player like, say, Dean Henderson, who is a good goalkeeper and certainly a goalkeeper of Premier League standard, but has been a rotten, rotten streak of luck, he might also be someone who might be looking for a transfer elsewhere. Sorry, yeah, De Gea won the Golden Gloves uh, this season, um, which is kind of a surprise to many, really. In most of the teams of the season, we had uh, the likes of Ramsdale, Edison and others. Um, is De Gea much maligned? And do those those 16 or 17 clean sheets he's had actually tell a better story than some of the um, high-profile mistakes that he's made? Or is it a case that, yeah, okay, he can keep a clean sheet, but, you know, he's not the goalkeeper for United going forward, uh, leaving the mistakes aside, like, structurally as a the need for ball-playing goalkeepers now, is he not quite uh, on that level? I think it's the latter that you've described there, in that Dave De Gea remains a phenomenal athlete and a super superb shot stopper. He, he uses his athleticism to often bail him out of situations where his other weaknesses perhaps get him into. We, we know he's not the most dominant when it comes to claiming crosses. We know he's not a particularly good penalty saver. We know he's not the you know most ambitious sweeper keeper. However, he remains a phenomenal athlete, able to, to save shots uh, and able to manoeuvre himself into difficult situations and, and save things. The clean sheet record is being read by a number of Manchester United fans as the good work of Lissandra Martinez and Rafael Varane just as much as it is about David De Gea. I think David De Gea can continue as a Manchester United goalkeeper, providing Lissandra Martinez is fit for the start of next season and can cover up some of De Gea's weaknesses in build-up. If Martinez is not fit, firing 100%, then the difficulty increases. And this is the situation with De Gea in that sooner or later, Eric Ten Hag will want to move him on to get a goalkeeper who's better in line with his style of play. However, you can probably survive with De Gea if you have a limited transfer budget. And again, this is tied up into another other things above Eric Ten Hag. One of the revelations really of the season has been Marcus Rashford, who is nearly a forgotten man coming into this season. And I get the sense because he's a local player, you know, even though he's such a phenomenal player, you know, fans love big signings. They love, you know, they love to, you know, see that the best stars from around Europe and the world coming in, particularly a club like Manchester United. But how important is it for United to keep, you know, to keep Rashford um, as opposed to like getting distracted by bids for people like Harry Kane? Or do you think they need to do both? I think that there needs to be a balance. I think Rashford's 22-23 season has been a revelation. And he, you know, he's had his best ever goal-scoring season for Manchester United. He's been a, a fantastic player. And, and for the a good chunk of the season has been United's best chance of scoring goals. He has that left wing, left-sided spot of the 4-2-3-1 locked, and that helps Ten Hag put, you know, plan for the rest of the season. We know Manchester United need another player to go alongside Marcus Rashford. Uh, there's been talk, not just from Eric Ten Hag, but also from Sir Alex Ferguson, about a need for a striker. Uh, and getting a striker who can complement Marcus Rashford, who Marcus Rashford can work alongside very well, will be in Eric Ten Hag's thinking. 
which is why I think certain strikers are being um, prioritised in certain shortlists over others. Leaving um, Manchester United, just, just for a second, I was listening to you on the Totally Football show last week and the, the subject of Ivan Tony came up and um, you were very strong with your views on, on that particular situation. I'm just wondering, uh, for those of our audience that didn't have a listen to that show, um, what was your response to the uh, eight-month ban? Um, you know, a lot of people saying that it was, it was harsh, um, but yet, you know, the guy also, I think it was over 300 individual transgressions. It seemed like it wasn't just one or two punts. It was quite um, a systemic um, problem that he had. Of course, we don't know all the details or whether the bets were on, which games they were on, etc. But how did you kind of respond to that news? We knew that the ban would be quite substantial. Um, and the closest benchmarks or, or frameworks we could compare it to was Rio Ferdinand's drug suspension in twenty twenty in 2002 uh, and Kieran Trippier's six-month ban uh, for when he was went to Atletico Madrid. So we, we knew it would be months rather than weeks. Um, eight months is substantial ban. You know, if, if, you're, if you're playing fantasy football right now and you try and click on Ivan Tony, it's going to tell you he's not available until January 17th, which feels faintly absurd. Um, it's a very t- difficult situation because it, it, it combines two or three um, much larger conversations, both in, in terms of football's relationship with the, with betting companies and with uh, rules that football players need to abide to and whether or not they should. Um, Ivan Tony broke the rules in a repeated large extent. He's been charged with 232 uh, counts of, of, of gambling activity. That is completely unprecedented. Uh, and and the ban that's been handed out to him is largely unprecedented as well, which I think makes it quite difficult to get your head around. And Carl, just to close, speaking of repeated financial transgressions, Manchester City, we know they're facing you know very very significant um, charges on the ground in in Manchester. I know it's the other side of town from from who you primarily cover for the Athletic, but how is it being considered? It seems like from from our side of the world, it seems like there's almost two speeds to the economy in one sort of sense. They're accused of these sort of grandiose, you know, accusations and they need to be treated extremely seriously. And then on the other hand, we see them lift their fifth trophy in six years, Champions League final, FA Cup final coming up, all seems sunny. How does it How does it work? How does it fit together? It doesn't, is the short answer. Uh, you're correct. They are two different speeds. You, you know, you've had the image at the Etihad of uh, Richard Scudamore, it's not Richard Scudamore anymore, sorry, uh, it's Masters, um, <laughs> handing out Premier League medals to, to Manchester City players on Sunday when those players or those players or play for a club that is in the middle of a serious investigation. Uh, there are Manchester United fans now who respond 115 or 115 whenever Manchester City fans chirp up in the pub. So this will go on and on and on and on and on. Uh, at the moment, Manchester City are the dominant force in England. The amount of charges put against them puts a asterisk over their achievements. Well, Carl, as we say, still uh, the matter of top four in the FA Cup final to come. But for the purposes of this chat, fantastic to bookend Eric Tanak's first season uh, with you and look forward to chatting to you uh, next season and beyond as hopefully from a man new point of view, the, uh, the glory days continue to roll back in. Thank you very much. The Athletics Carl Anchor there. Stick around on the other side of the break. We'll close out with a bit of Women's World Cup Corner. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Welcome back. Fantastic to chat to Carl Anker there. Now, Edge, you have got the uh, the homework this week. It is to out the Women's World Cup corner segment, and you're going to start in the heart of the Swiss midfield. I certainly am. Um, she's an Arsenal player. Leah Walter, she's uh, Switzerland's midfielder and playmaker, and she was injured in Arsenal's loss to Chelsea on the weekend and is going to be a race against time to see her, her be fit for the FIFA Women's World Cup. Switzerland, uh, Willem, they'll have... Uh, ambitions to go deep into the tournament, at least to the quarterfinal stage. And without Leah in the team, they'll find it a little bit harder. Um, I also want to go to the Spanish national team. Um, fans of the women's game would notice that the Spanish women's team um, had imploded in acrimony last year. 15 players had made themselves unavailable for selection because of the resources and the setup and the and the, the coaching structures within the Spanish team. Uh, they were holding out as a negotiation as a group. They've now decided to individually negotiate with the Spanish Federation, each, uh, each one of them, to see whether they'll be available for um, the Women's World Cup. I'll tell you what, this has got a recipe for disaster. I can't see Spain doing anything uh, in Australia and New Zealand at this year's Women's World Cup if this continues in the way it is because it looks like some players won't make themselves available but some will. So the players splitting their solidarity. And the other big news out of the women's game is that the UN US women's national team starting left, uh, left winger, uh, Mallory Swanson, she plays for Chicago Red Bulls. She's a superstar. She's... Uh, uh, her, she snapped her patella tendon and she's now not going to be able to get up for the uh, Women's World Cup uh, later. It's on the countdown, women. We're not long, long away. These injuries are big injuries. So the US Women's National Team now has uh, a challenge to face to uh, see who, who can replace Mallory. She's big shoes to fill, but we know the depth of the US system with them. We, we should expect that they'll come up with a good one. But uh, there's some big news out of the women's game as the World Cup gets another week closer. It's that pre-World Cup or pre-major tournament twilight zone, isn't it, Edge, where you just want all the domestic leagues to finish. Just put them in cotton wool, give all of those professionals a chance to have a, a proper crack at what it is that they really are driving for at the end of the day. I mean, of course, they're, they're committed to their clubs and they're their primary employers, but um, the national teams and World Cups hold a, hold a special place. So, yeah, not good to see all these players going down. Um, on your second point, I can't believe that Spain situation still rolling on. That's been playing out for, for years. Uh, they made the final of the... Uh, no, they didn't make the final of the Euro, did they? Were they? I think they were two-time uh, winners heading in. Uh, they were. They were knocked out by England, Willem. But they were knocked out they early. Were, they were. They were actually. Um, I think quarterfinals. They were. They were definitely one of the favourites going in, and England just squeaked past them. Actually, it was a bit of a one of those that could have gone either way. So you look at their group: Costa Rica, Zambia, and Japan. You'd think they'd negotiate that edge, but then it is how you know do you squeak through in second and then you get the tougher side of the draw? So probably for a, a side of their magnitude, uh, yeah, you're predicting this will stymie them to uh, to that extent? Well, it can't be good, can it? Because these players are not uh, training together. Uh, when they have their camps, they're making themselves unavailable. They're desperate to get, uh, my mail is they're desperate to get seven or eight of them into the team. So yeah, it's, um, it's not looking good for Spanish women's football. I mean, this stuff is, you know, we've seen it played out. We're, in Australia, we can remember when the players... Uh, didn't get on the plane to go and play a friendly against the United States over uh, issues around the team and um, uh, remuneration and resources and so forth. So we've seen it play out here. We've seen it play out in America recently. So um, the one in Spain seems to be dragging on and uh, it, it's got to impact the preparation for that uh, 
that nation's performance at the World Cup. It just has to. Edge, I think you think about World Cups probably more than anyone bar Les Murray used to. It's your your livelihood to a large extent, your job, and you've you've gone through more of them than than most. Does this one feel real yet? You've, you've said to me in the past that there's a, a clicking point where it really does come from a something you know far off in the distance that needs to be planned for to to reel on the ground. We're a couple of months out. Where are you at with your your personal sort of mechanism around the World Cup? Oh, it's very real for me now, Willem, because of the countdowns on. I'm actually doing some work for uh, US Soccer with some of their um, their programs uh, of fans and uh, and teams that are coming out to experience the World Cup. So I'm. Um, yeah, it's getting very real for me. I'm talking to people that are getting extremely excited. We've said before, our listeners to our podcast will know, you know, they're rusted on football fans, so everybody knows what's coming down the pipe, that this event is going to be the biggest event in Australia since the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games. So it will be massive. And I'm super excited for um, the, the, the tourists that are coming to Australia that, that will experience... Uh, the wonderful lifestyle that Australians have, our beautiful cities, and and those tourists going to New Zealand. But uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting for the expatriate communities that live here, who will not only support the Matildas but will support their country of heritage as well. Um, and can Asia? For me, this is a tournament in Asia. Can Japan and Australia and Korea do something in this tournament? Because World Cups have been dominated by the US and the European nations for a long time. Uh, Japan has popped up from time to time and done well, but can the Asian teams make an impact in our Matildas? We've got, we've spoken about it a lot. They've got a great opportunity. And I know that if we get into the round of 16 or into the quarterfinals, this country, Australia, will explode behind the Matildas. It'll be uh, very, very memorable. So we've got a lot to look forward to. It's terribly exciting. And if you haven't got a ticket, uh, a lot of the games are sold out in Australia, but if you haven't got a ticket, get a ticket to any game Give yourself a, a wonderful World Cup experience. Get along and see uh, women's football at its at its best, uh, the best place in the world going around. Uh, it, it, if you can't tell, well, I'm excited. <laughs> How do I get a ticket? Edge, I, I tried a few months ago. I was really put off because I got there and it was like tumbleweeds and abandoned barn. Um can I still take my little daughter to a game or have I as the ship sails? Absolutely, uh, Derek. You can uh, get onto the FIFA platform now. There's a resale platform. People that are, uh, a lot of people from overseas have bought tickets uh, thinking that they would come, but that maybe won't. They will go back into the resale platform. Uh, get along and get any ticket, uh, Derek. Don't worry about um, if you can't get a ticket to see the Matildas. You won't get a ticket to see the Matildas play Canada in, in Melbourne, but uh, any one of those other games, I think. Uh, Germany's playing here, Colombia's playing here, um, you know, um, Nigeria's playing here. So you get along. Uh, yeah, I picked up Germany-Morocco tickets this week, Derek. So uh, jump on and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see you there. That'll just about do us, I think, gents. Derek, we'll catch you later in the week in stoppage time. Thanks, gents. Michael Edgley, stay cool in uh, Bangkok. I try to. It's stinking hot over here, Willem. I'm going to the pool again. Must be nice. Uh, thank you to Damo on the buttons. Thank you to Nick Montgomery and Carl Anker. And to you, the listener, make sure that you do please subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on Twitter. Uh, that would be what happens when you do uh, tweet us. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.